When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we are putting the business back into lady business. Today, we have Beth Ferreira, who's a partner uh, at the venture capital firm Firstmark. It's a VC that invests in a broad range of consumer products, companies, many of which are female founded. Prior to that, Beth was the managing partner at WME Ventures, COO of Fab, and ran operations early on at Etsy. She's definitely a pioneer as a lady boss in early startups and investing. And today she's going to give us a 101 on what it all means. Beth, thank you for coming and welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. We've been talking about this a long time because Beth and I are also friends and uh, we're also conspiring um, where we're going to go in August because we have no plans yet Um, (laughs) because we're too busy working. (laughs) Because that's true. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. But let's start at the beginning. Okay. Tell us a little bit, you know, how and why you got started in the startup space. Mm -hmm. So to back up a bit, um, I came out of college. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I had this idea that I would do something in business that landed me in investment banking. And most people say, you know, and business banking was so awful and I needed to get out. I actually really liked it. But the last deal I worked on there was this company that was a super early stage company. It was an ISP in St. Louis, Missouri, and they were raising capital, like very early stage. And because it wasn't an important deal, they sent the most junior person out and I wrote the business plan and helped them build their financial model. And they were so excited about building this business and had so much vision. And I came back to New York and I was like, this is the type of business I want to work with. Like these are the types of people and I want to work with entrepreneurs. So I scoured New York. This was back in 98 where there was a burgeoning tech startup scene here and ended up finding and I interviewed with a whole pile of different types of companies, including like, you know, internet currency, because people are afraid of credit cards online. There's all kinds of things happening then. And I um, ended up finding a venture capital firm, one of the first venture capital firms to focus on the internet and sent them a blind cover letter. And one of their partners answered and I met him and he was like, you're great. We love you, but we have no jobs. I kept in touch for about six months and eventually landed a job. So had a front row seat for the dot-com boom and crash. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. <laughs> that, that's how I got started. But, you know, definitely was working with the super early stage founders. And then what about Etsy? How did you get there? 
So um, I worked in venture capital, the whole market crash, so the dot-com crash, I left and um, ended up going to business school. And in that transition, um, I looked back at the time, there was a couple things. And one, there was no women in venture capital. And so how, like what path would I have to get to be a partner was very, very murky. The second was most of the investors that were really successful at the time all had operating experience. And I was like, well, I want to be really good at this. So I'm going to get operating experience too. And it took a while because I was always on the outside of things as a banker and then a VC. And so people at that time were like, well, you know, what do you know about actually running a business? So it took actually probably about a year and a half for me to find a job. And I ended up getting it, um, I had ended up getting an offer that was sort of a non-direct way to get to an operating role. Like it would take a strategy role and then move to an operating role in a larger company. And I went to one of my mentors who he was like, don't do that. I'm looking at a company in Brooklyn. Come take a look at it with me. And that was Etsy. So um, fast forward, he ended up investing and I ended up joining as a 12th employee. So right as you know, the company had been launched for a bit, had some product market fit, but was you know about to scale. And uh, so that's how I ended up at Etsy. Wow. I mean, and the 12th person, that's so insane. Um, yeah. But then what, like, you know, I would assume that, you know, you're at, you're in investment banking and in venture capital and we'll get to what venture capital is and all that 101. But then, you know, you go to something like Etsy and don't you like take a massive salary cut and all for options? And I don't know, I'm assuming I'm asking actually. Yeah. I took more than half of a pay cut or more than half of my salary is pay cut. Got options, you know, looking back, I probably had a good option package, but I probably should have negotiated for more. That's a whole nother lady business topic. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> but uh, Yes, it is. <laughs> and, you know, it was very different because, you know, I joke, like, what was your job? I was the chief adult, even though I, you know, I was in my early thirties at the time, I was much, much older and had a different set of experiences than my colleagues at the time. They had created something amazing, but we were at this place where we needed to scale and thinking through all the things that you need to do. So whether, you know, it's processes, how engineering speaks to to product and, you know, marketing cadences and user acquisition and all that stuff. It was just like going through the first iterations of formalizing all of that. In a company where this is at a time where people thought I had lost my marbles. They're like, are you going to a craft startup in Brooklyn? Like what? (laughs) And you know, it's interesting with like all of your life experiences sort of um, culminate into how you make decisions. And so I had always grown up with my family, whether it was my grandmother or my mother, like making things or sewing or crocheting and sort of understood that maker mentality. And then thinking about how do you scale that? So we went and looked at all the, all the craft fairs and the Brooklyn flea and saw what was going on. And you're like, of course, this needs to go online. And of course, yeah. there's going to be a need to be a differentiated market and that eBay and Amazon wouldn't be able to serve both those customers and those sellers. Right. So that was the thesis. And it was, you know, it was funny because yeah. I came in as like the blue shirt MBA that, you know, the evil guy. And when I was able to like, sew or crochet or the team was sort of like, 
You're right. Did you? <laughs> you are very crafty. <laughs> that from you. <laughs> yes, you're very crafty. Well, okay. So, what about um? How did you have the experience to do that? You know, I feel like so often women are like, "Well, I don't know how to do it, so I can't do it." And we're also, it, you know, it's a very true statistic that women are hired on men are hired on potential, and women are hired on experience, right? And so when you went in there and you had to do these processes, like, how did you know how to do it? Were you just like faking it? What did you do? <laughs> well, that is why I had to take the risk going so early stage, because if it was a later stage company, they wouldn't have hired me. So I had to take the risk on myself that I could right. figure it out. So that's the number right. one piece. Right. The second piece, and this was in particular in my experience at Fab, I sort of created this whole, I'll call it personal board of directors, but people who had done this job before and were willing to talk to me. So I had, you know, the COO of Overstock and the COO of Guilt Group and a bunch of others who were willing to answer my questions and talk to me about the pitfalls and things like that. And then the other piece was just being confident in yourself to hire the best people around you. So I see a lot of founders who either don't think they deserve that support around them yeah. Yeah. or it's like, you know, or they're insecure that they think that they might be taking a piece of their job away. And I was like, there's too much work to do. We need the best person we can get right now in finance. We need the best yeah. person in marketing and across yeah. the board. And those people, and, you know, this is particularly true when, I was the COO of Fab. I had never run a fulfillment operation before. Like my team was teaching me. Right. And so I was thinking more from a strategic perspective and staffing perspective and vision perspective. Yeah. But, you know, we can learn along the way. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the things I say all the time. It's like, for some reason, women in particular, like we don't do our own hair. We don't do our own nails. We don't watch our own children because we're working like, but for some reason, when it comes to work, it's like, I can do it all. And it's like, we can't do it all. I make the, I make the mistake all the time. And I'm sitting out here trying to get women to like hire other women. And I do it constantly. And I don't know what it is. I just think that we feel like we're just very confident and we can do it all ourselves. But yes, it's probably a little bit of insecurity and it's like, I don't deserve it or I don't have enough money. But, you know, men have been doing that forever, right? With teams and they know what position they're in. So well, it's also being in the place of hiring for aptitude. Yeah. And so, right. And so in early stage businesses, that's all we really have because a lot of times we can't get the super experienced people to come in super early. So we have to look at that. And like one of the things, when I think about my teams at both Etsy and Fab, where my team is today, I think I have like 12 COOs of different companies and like, you know, people have gone on to do these great things. And many of them had come in as like a couple of years of experience coming into the into the business. So it wasn't that long ago right. that, that I was doing awesome. that. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. All right. So then you started and you wanted to get back into investing then, right? And yeah. You, had- you know, it's interesting. I always had this idea like, you know, I'm going to get this operating experience and I'm going to go back. And I actually really liked, I mean, I liked it way more than I thought. And I was much better at it than I ever thought I would be. Yeah. And so I ended up spending almost a decade on that side And then after I left Fab, you know, I spent some time thinking like, do I have another one of these in me? And I think if I had found the right company, I might've done it again. But what was interesting, I started on this journey to go back to venture. And there was, you know, a lot of people had known me from the ecosystem and 
they were like, oh, like you should come interview at my firm. And it was a very interesting journey because there was a lot of interest, but I wasn't able to convert anything. So mm-hmm. I had, um, you know, it was like in some cases, 11 interviews, multiple partner dinners. And it was sort of like in this place where it's like, you're not really quite like us. I can't tell you why we're not hiring you, but it's, but it's really just a fit issue. And right. so, and this is before me too, this is before it was cool to have a female partner on your roster. And that was when I got introduced to the folks at WME and they were interested in creating a fund. And I was like, these guys are willing to take a bet on me and give me capital and to give me a platform. Like this seems like a dream come true. This is absolutely fantastic. And, and it ended up being like great because it was, you know, we had the capital, I was able to create a track record. Uh, it was a differentiated platform that we created and we invested in a whole bunch of different great companies, but the path was bumpy and I had to think about, and, and this is something we'll go, I'll go into later for founders. It's like, you have to play the game that's on the field. Yeah. And that then I was like, not going to get that over the goal line um, to get one of those roles. Wow. And so I had to come, I had to go and do something slightly different and actually prove. And sometimes you can do like on the venture side, you can do that if you have, you know, your own seed portfolio, which if highly recommend, and I did not do enough personal investing. You mean doing personal investing. If you Mm -hmm. show them that you were investing in these companies and had deal flow, basically, that then you thought you think that you could have gone, had a better. Yeah. I mean, I think it would have been helpful because the question is, is like, you know, look at your background, but then it's also like, ultimately, are you a good picker? Can you get into companies you have access? And I had been an advisor to a bunch of companies. So I did have some, a portfolio of that. And I, I made a few, you know, small investments, but if I had, you know, 20 investments or 30 investments and I can show that their track record, I think it would have been a lot easier. Wow. Okay. That is very interesting. Something that happens like recognizes like, right? I mean, it goes back to the boys club and why it's really hard for a woman to get a job in these areas. I mean, less so after me too, but it's still happening. And after COVID actually kind of put us back all over again. Um, so let's get back into actually what is venture capital, right? So it's, you know, we have these conversations as any, everybody really understands, but they're thrown around. It's like, what is venture capital when, you know, a relatively newer term and then versus like private equity and, and what's the difference of that? And then a family office, like, can you just go into 101 of what you you do versus private equity in a family office and um, yep. not what you do, but what it means really. Yeah. What it means. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, I'd actually start a little bit. I'll just start with what the term angel money or what people call friends and family. And that is the first capital that you might raise to prove out your concept. And that is more patient capital. Usually it's usually people who um, are in it for the long term. And, you know, fundamentally just believe in you and your ability to execute against whatever the business that you're, you've set out to do. And once you have that, and sometimes people are able to get to that place funding through sales, depending on the type of company. Sometimes it, they, you know, put it on their own credit cards or, you know, fund it themselves, but whatever it is, like that's the earliest stage. Then we get to venture um, venture, I'd say at the highest level is a company that will have outsized growth and ultimately outsized returns. So when you think about, you know, the companies 
that are venture backed that are most successful. So whether it's like an Airbnb or Pinterest or Uber, they're growing at a rate at least 3x a year and usually much, much higher than that. And so when you think about raising venture capital, I think like, okay, if I raise this capital, will I able to achieve that kind of growth? Right. And not all businesses can, but a lot of businesses, but a lot of businesses may fit in that category. And you think about all of the early stage businesses, they get something like 3% get venture capital. So it's very small, right? Because there's tons of small. And when you think about small businesses, like there's tons of small businesses. Um, But that's, I think, the number one piece. The second piece is there usually needs to be some sort of component that drives that growth. And there's like some sort of secret sauce, whether it's, you know, it's the community behind the product in a company like Glossier, or it's like an outsized advantage using technology in some way. And if you think about like your company from that perspective, that also sort of fits in the venture capital bucket. And the, when you think about the returns, like the rule of thumb is 10x, mm-hmm. a real success for a venture backed company is more like 100x and, or even more. When you think right. about like investing at the seed in the series A and companies that can like continue. And I think like the returns on, I don't actually know, but like the returns on like, Pinterest, for instance, was, you know, 1500x. So just to put it in perspective. Now, private equity uh, usually comes into companies when companies are already established. They usually have steady revenue. They may, their revenue is probably still growing at a good clip. So usually, you know, at least 2x a year, but probably still at the 3x. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to throw off cash. So they're what we call EBITDA positive. You know, they're, these investors are looking for like a two to three X in three to five years, depending on the type of firm. Right. And so if you're already established and you think that you might have an opportunity to exit, so whether it's through an IPO or through a merger or something along those or to sell to another private equity firm, like that is usually a good place to go for that kind of capital. And then in a family office, I'd put a family office as a sort of hybrid between all three of those. Right. And so family offices are usually financial, or they, I shouldn't say usually, they're always financially motivated, but they do have longer time horizons. So in the case of venture capital and private equity, they have, they get their money from somewhere and they need to go and return that capital plus some to those, those people who gave them the capital. In family office, the dollars are coming from them, so they have more time. And so they can think about things from through a different lens. And whether it's, you know, I want to foster cleaner a cleaner environment or do something with social good, you know, with a social mission or whatever, and that might take a longer time or have a lower return. Right. But family offices are generally can be a lot more flexible. Yeah. Family offices, you know, for people listening that don't know, are families with a like a large amount of money that have dedicated that money to invest to generate more wealth for themselves. And they hire people around it. And so what kind of companies? So knowing that with VCs and they have to be like hyper growth, then what kind of companies are you looking at? Even though you do consumer goods, it's like service businesses are not right to raise VC money, right? I hear, you know, people come to me sometimes and I'm like, you know, I need to raise money and I need a VC. And I'm like, what kind of business is it? Well, it's a service business. Like what kind of companies are really like 
made for venture capital. So yeah, we look at consumer goods. We look at consumer broadly. So sometimes they're consumer services, but I'll give you a few examples of companies that I've invested in over the yeah. last you know, six to 12 months. So um, we invested in a company called Work It Health. So Work It is focused on addiction treatment online. And so the idea is to democratize access. There's not enough treatment centers in the country to treat the number of people who need treatment. And it's also a lot of times difficult to not only get to the treatment, but stay on the treatment. Right. And so, you know, the efficacy is much, much higher. So they're using technology in a way to create and democratize access to the product. And because of the founders' backgrounds and their familiarity with the issues, they're able to create a product that is superior to other products in the market. So from a product perspective, the founders have a great product market fit. So it's a consumer business. Right. That's female founded too, right? Yep. Two female founders. Woo. Yeah. Also yeah. Beth invested in Glossier too, right? And I did. Yeah. Glossier. I've been okay. dropping some names in my list. <laughs> for the lady. Exactly. Exactly. You know, another, which was a super early stage company that, um, the JJ that I, I think I mentioned to you before is a company called Archive, also female founded. The idea there is that the secondhand market is huge and the brands are unable to, or not situated to participate in it. And so this gives them sort of a white labeled approach to create their own resale for their customer base. That's um, it's like NFTs for artists. Like it is the resale value, which they don't like, you know, gen, like artists, they don't. So they get in 10 to 20%. Yeah. And hopefully they'll figure out the NFT thing faster than the retailers on the, the resale side, but we'll see. Yeah. But those are kind of, you know, two examples of like types of companies where, you know, technology will, you know, help accelerate those businesses. I mean, they look across, you know, the consumer landscape. We're looking at companies I mentioned, like, you know, is it community driven? Is there something that, the approach, particularly from a technology perspective, will help them accelerate. But then also on the enterprise side, like I look at a lot of, you know, as the COO and built products inside companies for a decade, I look at a lot of companies that are enabling. So, you know, whether it's commerce infrastructure, so like payments and things like that. Um, I just did a, a warehouse um, software product to help like optimize labor. So all these problems that I lived as a COO, right. I'm sort of like going and ticking the boxes and <laughs> trying yeah. to solve all of my problems. Let me like, I'm going to invest in people are going to solve it. Yeah. And then I'd say like, when you think about like what businesses are, you know, what, what businesses are not in that bucket, I would say it's anything where there's like your personal labor or set of labor. It's um, that's what you're leveraging. So when you say services, it's really hard to, you know, venture back a nail salon. Right. Now there's lots of businesses that are in and around the space, whether it's like platforms to help you schedule your services, you know, or technology around delivering the services, but the actual services itself are a little bit more difficult. Right. No, that makes sense. So, you know, you talked about how 3% of businesses get venture money. And then I think that we have heard it quite often that only 2% of women get venture capital. And if you're a woman of color, 0.5%. So obviously you're, you know, doing what part you can and looking at women founded businesses, obviously not only, but still from your perspective, like what's the issue? Why is that? Why aren't women given the same opportunities 
from an investment point of view as men? I think there's a bunch of issues. I think it first starts at the earliest stages when you look at, you know, I look at a lot of the engineers that I worked with at both Etsy and Fab, and they roll out these companies and they basically pass the hat to their friends and their friends just write them a 25 or 50K check, sort of no questions asked. Like, yeah, I believe in you. You're going to do something great. And not all of those checks work out, but a lot of them do, especially if you have worked with that person before. So it's the natural networks and access to these types of deals um, is one from an investing side. And then as a founder, also it's the access and network because I don't have my crew of quote guys that are going to write me that check sort of carte blanche. So I think it's harder to get just blatantly just harder to get off the ground. Right. And then when you look at, there's so much unconscious bias because, you know, it's not just the 2% going, only 2% going to founders. When you think about who controls the dollars, it's almost all controlled by men. Only 7% of venture capitalists are women. And even fewer than that are actual check writers. You know, there are lots of groups and trying to help change that. And I'd say, you know, when I started in venture, you could put all the women in New York City around one dinner table. And, and it's all in at that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, right before the pandemic, we had just a, a New York focused event and we had over 200 people show up for female, you know, venture capitalists. And so it's definitely changing but it's not, it's slow change because it's it's big and there's lots of dollars and there's a lot of junior people coming in. There's not a lot of, there's not a ton of investors of our vintage that are female. (laughs) So, so that's, so change is happening, but the change is, is happening slowly. And so we have to think about how do we, you know, change up more quickly. And this is the thing that I tell my partners all the time is like, you know, we, we're not looking at female founded companies because we're trying to be charitable. We are looking at them because we want to make money until people really feel like they're missing out on these deals. And I think people more and more are feeling that way. Right. And these numbers aren't going to change. But the great thing about it is that we're seeing more and more female founders have big, big exits. And that's what's going to change. Yeah. That's just it. Like Figs just had the IPO, which was great, founded by women. Um, But yeah, I say it all the time. It's like, we're not a charity case. We are 50% of the population, actually a little bit more than 50% of the population and control 80% of the purchasing power. So, you know, if it's like female products that like help women, like a parsley health, like in particular, even though they don't solely, you know, um, service women, then everybody's going to benefit, right? All the investors, et cetera. So what do you think when women are founders and they come to you, like, what's some advice? What's some like mistakes they make, like things that they can, you know, they can do to set themselves apart because they already know they're at a disadvantage walking into the room. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is like really understand why you're in the room. And um, the biggest, the biggest thing I see founders and particularly female founders, it's like, well, so-and-so and so-and-so raised X amount of dollars. My company is so much better, so I should be raising more. And that actually may actually be the case, but that might not be the reality when you're walking into these rooms. So thinking about how to position your business in the biggest growth lens that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we're not exaggerating, but we're telling what's possible. And that is, and I think, women tend to be 
a little bit more conservative and hold back those, those projections. The other piece is like, when you go out, if you think you should be raising 40, maybe you go out and say you're raising 20 or 30, because you can always increase that number. And it's not a knock on, oh, I don't think we need 40, but you're like, well, you're talking about 40, you mean 40 million. Oh, sorry. 40 million. Sorry. I'm like, now I'm speaking in jargon. Sorry. $40 million. Like, but like, I would hate for a company to go out thinking that they're going to raise, they're going out, put out a number of 70 million and they raise 50 and think that that's a failure because right. raising 50 million is a huge, huge step function in any company. And I think we get a little bit tied to these like numbers, meaning like the worth of the business. And I think it's other like really reading, reading the room and making sure that you have the right support. So if you are not a finance expert, like you will find yourself someone who's going to help you like kick the tires on your numbers and make sure that you're prepared for every single question or, you know, making sure that you understand what the investor on the other side is looking for. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, your consumer business and you're talking to a consumer focused investor, they're going to want to know things like cohort analysis and like, you know, meaning like how many of your customers are still with you on month 11, month 18, they're going to be asking these types of questions right. and ensure that you're prepared for them. Right. So you have to be super prepared and knowledgeable about all of the financial stuff that none of us were talking about when we were teenagers and into college because we were told that money's icky and we don't talk about these things. Exactly. 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 Um, you know, here's another question I, I wish I would have asked a little bit earlier on, but like, like, how do you know even who to hire around this? Like, who is that person? You know what I mean? Like, and how do you find them? Oh, you mean like, for the different roles in your company? Well, it's not just that, but it's like, you know, to help you raise money and go out. Like, you know, are there certain money whispers? Are there people that you hire for this stuff, you know? You know, it, this is what also makes it really tough for women. So in the earliest stages, it's all about network. Yeah. And so it's about going out and meeting as many people as possible and like expanding your network, yeah. but also not being afraid. Don't be afraid to ask. Most things happen through loose network. So people that you might've met once or twice, yeah. and they're sort of opening doors for you. It doesn't have to be your closest buddy introducing you to your funding source. Right. And the tricky part is, and like the stages that I invested in the super early stages, you know, if you have an intermediary, it's usually a negative signal. So you may want to have someone help you yeah, yeah, there yeah. in the background, right. but you don't yeah. want them in the foreground. Yeah, exactly. you're, like, you're the CEO and you've got this. So you're going to come yeah. in and right. you're going to tell them what's going on. When your right. company is a little bit later stage and you might be raising private equity, in some cases, it makes sense to uh -huh. hire yeah. an investment bank. Amazing. Look, um, I know you have um, a schedule. I just heard your little timer go off and... Uh <laughs> No, we're, we're women of the world, man. So my last question, what's the best business advice you can give a woman listening who wants to be you? Um, be authentic. And so, you know, understanding like what you want to do in the world and whether, you know, you want to be on the venture side or, you know, more importantly, if you're creating a business, because there will be someone who understands your vision. You just have to find them. Right. Network, network, network. Well, thank you so much. If people want to find you, where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter at Beth Ferreira. You can email me at Beth at firstmarkcap.com. That's it. 
Yes. Thank you so much, JJ. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and experience with our listeners, because I feel like we're just never given the 101 on, on so much of this. And we're just meant to like gloss over and pretend that we know. So thanks for listening, everybody for watching this episode and or listening to this episode of taking care of lady business. Uh, Until next time, I'm Jennifer Justice.